0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who don't identify as either, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable. I'm so sad right now. I can't see Renaissance. It's not even on the lineup from my local theater. Napoleon showed up, though. It actually started today. I'm, like, borderline obsessed with Napoleon. Not in, like, a I-like-Napoleon way or I-support-Napoleon. It's just a really fascinating story. And then after being in Paris and like, you know, seeing the palaces and all the razzle dazzle. And I told you he was like Trinidad James, like nigga love gold. That's not the point. The point is there is no Renaissance on the horizon for me. I was scrolling through Instagram this morning. I'm seeing people's reviews of Renaissance. This woman, like literally two seconds ago, just sent me a DM. She said she saw Renaissance last night and it left her quote in awe. I saw a video on Miss Tina's page. Apparently, y'all are like turning up at the theater. Like, it's the concert, which I was like, maybe I don't need to see it in America. Because if I go to the theater, like, I want people to laugh. I want people to yell at the screen. But if you get up in the theater and start dancing, sir, ma'am, they, them, come on. You got to sit down at the theater, y'all. But apparently not. People were turned up. I won't have that experience because I, I... I am in another land, a, a Renaissance less land. <sighs> I saw there was a London premiere. Apparently, the land of London has Renaissance. The land of Donna does not. I clearly feel away. I feel away. But I saw there was a premiere for Renaissance in London. Beyonce looked lovely. She was dressed like a chandelier. Actually, maybe chandelier is not accurate. She was dressed like a De Beers diamond, but like with an emerald in the middle. Was it an emerald? Was it green? No, not an emerald. Emeralds are green. A sapphire. A De Beers diamond with like a sapphire in the middle. Beautiful. Stunning. Stunning. I think it was Balmain. She added a little more color to her hair. She changed it from House of Targaryen white. She added a little more gold to it and gave the wig some dark roots. And she's not as light. I don't know if man went to a tanning salon or she got a new photographer. They had somebody in post touch her up to give her a tint of brown. But she looks like a black girl once again she looked amazing also last week I didn't realize there were so many Swifties among us because I made an offhand remark about Taylor Swift not being at the premiere and I was like you know Beyonce was there for Taylor she did much for Taylor like where is Taylor and people promptly wrote in they were like Taylor Swift is on tour in South America that's why she wasn't there and as soon as Taylor popped up at the London premiere and did she was there in silver you would have thought there was another diddy lawsuit the way people were sending me pictures of taylor swift i was like oh, okay there are black swifties i didn't know that's not the point the point is there was a london premiere and london has the renaissance i saw blue ivy was on the red carpet with her mom she's such a tall kid did she turn 12 i don't remember when blue ivy's birthday is and she's turning into a young woman she's not a little girl anymore i'm like we watched this kid grow up we watched this kid in her mom's belly like i remember the reveal Many of you also pointed out, and just for clarity, it wasn't public knowledge at the time. Beyonce had not posted these pictures when I recorded the last podcast, but Jay-Z was at the world premiere of Renaissance. Beyonce posted a carousel of pictures on her Instagram page. I want to say the last two were her and Jay-Z sitting front row at the theater, eating popcorn and having a sip from branded Renaissance popcorn tubs. They were black and silver. And then the cups were also branded Renaissance. I saw there was a special drink. If you go to AMC theaters, you can get an alien superstar drink. I was like, who is behind the branding? I used to have a friend that worked high up at Parkwood. He would totally do some epic shit like this. I don't know who's over there running the place now, but kudos to them. Because everything has been on point. Even Beyonce looking blown out in that picture. Everybody didn't like it, but everybody was talking about it. Which means her name was on everybody's lips the week that her film premieres. It's not a bad thing. Hell, that might have been intentional now that I think about it. Everything from the outfit to Mama Tina's rant, it all might have been constructed by some mastermind. Huh. I'm so mad I can't see it right now. This is one of those times where I'm like, what am I doing over here again? No Beyonce. No Ava. Ava's got a new film out. It just screened last night in New York. People are raving about that too. Tanisha Ford, one of my favorite public intellectuals, she saw it last night origin is based on isabel wilkerson's cast i didn't read that i remember all the fuss about it when it came out but i didn't get a chance to read it should we add that to our reading list at some point i think i can get a copy of it over here there's a bookstore next to my nail salon but this is what tanisha had to say about the film She wrote this on Instagram. She said, this film is a real conversation starter about the global roots of prejudice, hatred, and anti-intellectualism. The power of familial love, the art of indie filmmaking, and so much more. Get to a screen to see it when and where you can. Oh, Tanisha, I would love to go see it. It is also not listed as coming anytime soon, if ever, at my local theater. Not that, not the color purple, I was on the phone with my dad earlier today and I was complaining and I was like, I can't see Renaissance. I can't see the color purple. I can't see Napoleon. I didn't realize it was in theaters here yet. And my dad was like, okay, come home. (laughs) Yo, that's my parents response to everything right now. (sighs) I'm so mad. I can't see Renaissance. And just FYI, I understand that these are not real problems. I'm just, it's my life. These are my problems. I know, I know, I know I don't actually have problems. I got my eyebrows done yesterday. I have a woman here who does like amazing ombre brows. And then she also does my lashes. But it took her like three hours between like the numbing and then actually like filling in the brows again. And then the lashes on top of that. And then us like talking. So I was listening to High on the Hog on Netflix while she was doing my face. Episode one is cool. Episode two is cool. Episode three. And this is the second season. My tech is doing my ombre brows, which it doesn't hurt. It's just like Aggie, if you will. I started crying and she was like, are you okay? Cause she thought I was crying cause I was in pain. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm listening to this show. And she was like, okay. Like she totally didn't get it. The host. I felt like he did a really good job with just asking a great question and letting people just talk. So he's sitting at this table with these elders, now elders, and he's asking them about essentially the role of food in the civil rights movement. So this opens up the conversation for folks to talk about how they got involved in the civil rights movement. I have heard countless stories about the civil rights movement. My dad is from Mississippi. He used to do mailers for Medgar Evers. I think I told y'all a story once about my father's friend who was at his birthday party and she was randomly telling me about this march that she worked on during the civil rights movement and it turned out to be the march on Washington and I was like I'm sorry excuse me and she was like yeah like she was talking about like her mentor by which she meant Bayard Rustin so I've heard countless stories of the civil rights movement I've watched eyes on the prize I've read books I've watched movies There should not have been anything specifically profound about these elders sharing their story of the civil rights movement. But he's talking to this group of people. They were in college at Clark, Spelman, Morehouse in the 60s. They're like 16, 17, 18. I think the oldest one amongst them said she was 19 at the time. One of the women, and she just struck me for some reason. She was talking about how she's from the north. Her parents sent her down to Spelman to go to school she had no concept of what it was like to live in the south and she was like if i wanted to get something as basic as a hot dog they're telling me i can't go through the front entrance i gotta go around back and she was like wtf because this ain't how she was raised up in the north not to say they didn't have their own brands of racism but it wasn't like this so she was like this is some bullshit So she calls back home. She tells her parents, she's telling her parents how crazy everything is in the South. And like people are marching and some folks are going to get together and protest because this is wrong. And her mother was like, girl, I didn't send you down there to protest. I sent you down there to get an education. I expect you to come back in one piece and with a degree. And so she was like, yeah, yeah, I hear you. But she was like, I just couldn't not be involved because everything was so bad. She said when she agreed to participate in the protest, They were like, hey, so everyone's here. Everyone wants to be about this life. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing. But understand, there's a lot at risk here. And so if you're prepared to go to jail for six months, because that's what could happen if you go out here and protest with us, then everybody step over here. And the people who aren't prepared to go to jail for six months, no hard feelings, but you need to, you know, step away. She was like, she and her friend were like, we're about to risk it all. So she talks about her first day going to protest. There was a fancy restaurant at a department store riches I think it was called she's out there with her picket sign she said there's a whole bunch of white people they're yelling all sorts of offensive stuff to her they're getting constantly called the n-word and then she said this white man walks up to her and put out his cigarette on her arm and this happened when she was 17 18 19 years old I'm like tearing up saying it now as she's speaking and she's got to be like in her 70s 80s now I could hear her like moving and I was like, what is she doing? And I held up my phone and she took off her bracelet and you can still see the cigarette mark all these years later from where that white man burned her. I lost it. I lost it. I don't know why that particular story like resonated so bad, but I actually need to go back and actually watch High on the Hog. I appreciated it very much that I was able to listen to it um, like it was a podcast or something and still get what I think. Is the full gist of it really powerful storytelling i don't know if they got new producers or the producers just stepped up their game whatever's going on but they really knocked it out the park this season just from listening to it speaking of the civil rights movement i just read tanisha ford's critique of ava's new film tanisha ford also has a book which is getting amazing reviews it's called our secret society molly moon and the glamour money and power behind the civil rights movement. I bring this up because in the same episode of High on the Hog, season 2, episode 3, they talk about the money that was raised for the civil rights movement. They were like, yeah, people can decide to like protest, people can decide to march, but all of these things require money. They were talking about black women cooking because that's the core of the show, black women cooking and selling plates to fund the civil rights movement. I remember watching Rustin and they talk about the fundraising too. People are giving donations. Some are just very small. Some are very big. Money is flowing in. But Tanisha C Ford, should I call her Dr. Ford? I ain't trying to be familiar. Put some respect on sister's name. But I really want to know about the glitz and the glamour going on. You know I like a budget. A budget well spent. A budget well spent on a good cause. I mean, I like a budget spent on frivolous shit too. But a good cause makes it even better. I need to pick up that book. Can I get it over here? (sighs) Maybe if I ask nicely, she'll send me a PDF. I hope there are pictures. I like looking at fabulous black folks. Do we have anything else important on our list? I really want to talk about Bob and Sheila this week because it's been a while since we talked about our friends or our friend. Miss Sheila is our friend in our head. Bob, you see, I don't even give him Mr. Bob. I don't even give him a last name. Bob, (laughs) hold on. Let me go get my copy of the book. While I'm going, oh, while I'm going to get my copy, this is me telling you now that we're doing spoilers for the book. If you are not interested in talking about Miss Sheila and her co-founder at BET, messy ass, then this is your time to log off. This is our last segment for this episode. So you won't be missing anything. So I'm going to go get the book and you can go turn this off. Go watch High on the Hog. Hell, go watch Renaissance since I can't see it. Shit. Okay, you still here? I'm assuming you want to hear about Miss Sheila. We're doing pages roughly 99 to 159. This is chapter seven through nine. So last we left off, Sheila had gotten an award, a big award. From the Jordanian government, and Bob had refused to go to celebrate her. He's consistent. So, on page 99, the start of chapter seven, it's entitled Going Public. That could mean several things. It could be the IPO, it could be the woman who sued Bob, and that's how Sheila found out about his affair. We'll get to that. So, at this point in the book, Sheila is working for BET full time. Remember, Bob had asked her to quit her job and come work for them. Sheila's at BET and Sheila is woefully unhappy with the content of her own network. She says BET is running nothing but videos because they're cheap. She notes, quote, I had two young children now and half the time I couldn't even have BET on at home. She also talks about how Tom Joyner, who she notes was one of the most popular black radio hosts in America at the time. Tom Joyner was running around blasting BET. He told Forbes magazine, I've been inside Bob's office and he doesn't even have it on in there. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Sheila says Bob didn't give a damn. She says he was focused on whatever it took to get the money pouring in. He would tell people it's black entertainment television. That's what the E stands for. She says he started using that line with everybody who complained about the quality of our programming. Just full disclosure. I used to work at BET two thousand. Two to 2004, it was my first job as an editor. I used to edit romance novels. So I edited romance novels for BET. BET had a book division, it made good money. And I actually liked my job. I mean, as an English major, and now I'm getting paid to like read all day. I left because they put in, God, what is it called? Like time clocks, like workers at a factory. They wanted us to clock in, like to literally take this little sheet and put it in a machine. And it would clock like the date and the time that we came into the office. And I was like, am I working at the fucking Ford factory? I have a master's degree. I'm not clocking in. I'm also getting paid on a salary. It's not like I'm getting paid by the hour. You need to make sure I'm getting all my hours in. I was like, are you kidding me? And I said as much to this is my boss in my email. And so she was like, well, it's required, blah, blah, blah. I started looking for a new job that day. I think by the end of the month, I was working at Harlequin. I was like, if you're going to do romance novels, you might as well go to like the biggest in the business, right? Not the point. Sheila observes that BET didn't have any kind of overarching structure or theme. She says Bob was just trying to fill hours with the cheapest programming he could, raking in more advertising dollars, increasing subscriber numbers, and racing toward an expected IPO. Bob wasn't interested in any kind of quote-unquote vision that stretched beyond the bottom line which people critique BET as that all the time. And it was like, no, there's gotta be more depth than that. Is there? At the time? Sheila is responsible for bringing us one of BET's best creations, Teen Summit. I used to wake up every Saturday morning and watch Teen Summit. I wanted to be on Teen Summit so bad. Bob was no big fan of Teen Summit. It just wasn't bringing in money. Bob told Sheila that he wanted to cancel the show And his logic was, if it don't kill nothing, it don't get to eat. (laughs) I hate this man. Sheila says, so despite the fact the Teen Summit would go on to win multiple NAACP awards, in addition to being nominated for Cable Ace Awards and even an Emmy, he was always threatening to shut it down. When he finally did decide to pull the plug in the mid-1990s, I just refused to accept it. I went out and persuaded the Kaiser Family Foundation to underwrite the show so we wouldn't have to worry about ads. I feel like they could bring Teen Summit back like right now on today and it would do well. Sheila says, I believe that making money was nice, but not if it came at the expense of our souls. But to Bob, money was money, however you made it. He didn't have a conscience about the company because he didn't have a conscience about himself. Lord, the way she drags this man... She says, he always believed that the ends justified the means, that so long as he made money for investors, nobody would care how he'd done it. Which is kind of true. I mean, it's harsh, but true. Sheila says that she had a different approach. She says, Bob's belief seemed to be that he had to cut corners and behave like a bully in order to make the company successful my theory as a CEO is the opposite. Do right by people, respect them and treat them well, and the money will follow. But there's always a but in this book. She says, as BET started moving toward an initial public offering, I wasn't the one in charge. Bob was, and he was about to make another decision that would gut me to the court. This is when I would have left. There's been many moments that Miss Sheila has shared where I'd be like, ma'am, it's time to pack your pocketbook, figuratively and literally, and go. She recalls, it's on page 106. She says, a few days before the October 30th IPO, I said something to Bob about traveling up to New York for the event. No, you're not coming, he said. She said, what do you mean? I had been with BET from the very beginning. I had even sold my violin to keep the company afloat. I wasn't just Bob's wife. I was a co-founder of the company, the vice president of corporate affairs and a major shareholder. The IPO for BET Holdings would mark the first time ever that a black-owned business debuted on the New York Stock Exchange. She continues, but Bob didn't want me there. He wasn't the type to fight or yell, but he would have made me feel unwelcome and small. If I insisted on being there, he would find another way to humiliate me. Humiliation was Bob's specialty. She says, as Bob knew I would, I just said fine. I didn't go to New York, but just kept my head down and went into work as usual on the day of the IPO. Ma'am, for whatever reasons, she won't stand up to Bob. She got daddy issues. Her mama had that meltdown on the floor. She's got a whole bunch of insecurity. The part that wasn't planted by her father has been planted by Bob. I'm trying to figure out why she went to the office that day. Because everybody knows that the IPO is happening. Everybody knows that Bob is up there. Everybody knows that you're a shareholder. Everybody knows that you're a co-founder. Why are you at the office, sis? Why are you at the office? Everybody's sitting there watching it on TV. They can see everybody there. They can see you in the office. Why you ain't just stay home? Take a spa day or something just, whoo. Where were Miss Sheila's girlfriends? She needed one of them, girl. What's been happening? Interventions. Cause so she says, so the IPO happens that morning. She says, by the time the closing bell rang, BET was worth 472 million American USD dollars and dineros. She says, Bob cashed out 375 hundred thousand of our shares instantly providing us with more than six million dollars. But that wasn't all he and I still owned 9.3 million shares of BET, which were now worth 218 million American USD dollars and dineros. I don't understand why Ms. Sheila didn't leave that day. Like up until this point, I understood what she was saying about Her mama, she saw her mother have this nervous breakdown after her father left, and she had to go get this job mopping floors at JCPenney. Her father wasn't providing. Her father wasn't present. She was afraid that if she wasn't with Bob, she was going to be in poverty and destitute, which... I was like, Miss Sheila, you was the one who was bringing in all the money and holding down the household when Bob was in school. You flipped the business from 7500 one year to like 68000 the next year. I was like, Miss Sheila, you've always had a track record from the time that you went and got that job at JCPenney to put food on the table from the time that you came back from wherever Bob was stationed overseas. I was like, we got $50. I could make 25 of it stretched to feed us for a week. You was out there like Jesus with like water and loaves of bread. I don't understand Miss Sheila. Even if you didn't see that part of yourself, even if you didn't realize like I have a knack for being able to figure it the fuck out. When you got 218 million, Miss Sheila, you could have left that day. I was talking to my mom about this book. And so she was like, well, let me give you some context. At that time in DC, my mother recalls that there had been several high profile, high net worth black couples that had split and the woman and the kids didn't get shit. She said, add that in to Sheila's rationale here. And I was like, even though she put in money at the beginning, like she's literally one of the initial investors. Like, does she really think she was leaving with nothing? She was like, okay, that's a slightly different scenario than the other women. But she was like, just think about like her mindset is not in a healthy place. Okay. A few episodes ago, I want to say this in the first 50 pages. A bunch of employees had left BET. One of them was this woman named Chicky. She was disgruntled when she left and Sheila didn't quite know why. But Chicky reappears now. Sheila says that she's at the house. She's dealing with an issue with Paige. Paige is seven. She says Paige was bereft. But the doorbell rings. Sheila said, I cracked the door open to find a young man standing there. He said, are you Sheila Johnson? She said, I am. And he thrust an envelope into my hands. He said, you've been served. So BET had this IPO. And makes a ton of money. And Chicky had left years earlier. But she's coming back now. Because she's like hey. When I worked for y'all. I got $40,000 a year. And she said Bob had promised me. That I would get shares of the company. And then whenever there was an IPO. That he would take care of me then. Because he was paying me nothing now. So she. And remember Polly. Bob's sister who had been stealing from the company. Her and Chickie and this other lady too, but we're going to focus on Chickie, had filed a lawsuit against Bob and BET saying they wanted some money. And Sheila was like, I'm not really surprised that they want money. Promising them shares sounds like something Bob would have done to try to squeeze some more hours of work out of them. She said, this was the part that did surprise me, learning why Chickie had actually left BET. According to the papers I'd just been served, she had quit the company in 1982, two years after we launched because of a, quote, personal relationship with Bob that was interfering with the business. She says my blood went cold. I had no idea Bob had been sleeping with Chicky. I mean, I had never really noticed Chicky, to be honest. She just seemed like a typical Washington, D.C., white female executive with her business suits and short hair. I knew she had traveled around with Bob to trade shows and sports events, but i never thought anything about it. This was how I learned about their three year affair by getting handed a subpoena and stumbling across that fact in the paperwork and suddenly realizing with a sick feeling in the pit of my stomach that everyone else would now know too. If they hadn't already known, maybe even for many years, she says it was bad enough that Bob was cheating on me. Did he really have to cheat with an employee of the company we founded? I could only imagine what the office gossip was like and how much of a fool people must have taken me for. She says, when Bob walked in the house, he was holding a box. She says, he obviously knew what was coming. He had brought me home an expensive necklace. I lit into him with a fury I had spent years tamping down. And Bob just took it. He was never a fighter. Just like her dad. She has that same description of her dad early on. When she finds her parents arguing in the kitchen the night they broke up, she said her mom was puffy eyed and crying and her dad was just standing there just looking blank. She said she goes off on Bob. He stands there and he says, Sheila, I'm going to work this out. I'm going to take care of this. She knows what he didn't say was that he was sorry. Sheila says the lawsuits dragged on for months until Bob finally agreed to settle before they went to trial. Sir, you let this shit drag out? Look, cut the check. Cut the check? Why did this man cut the check? Sir, you just made 218 million American USD dollars in dineros. Miss Sheila also said that y'all have 6 million of personal money sitting in your account. You let this shit drag out and let the papers document it? Nigga. Nigga. Who are your lawyers? Who are you? Cut the check. <sighs> she says Bob pays $900,000 each to Carol and Polly and more than $2 million to Chicky. $4 million. Family ties destroyed. A public airing of his infidelities and bullying and a black eye to the reputation of BET. I had put up with so much to this point. But when would it be too much? Sheila says that she never told her mother what was going on with Bob. She thought it would be triggering to her mother to know that basically Sheila was repeating her cycle. But she's not quite fed up. But she's on her way there. So she finally tells her mother, especially about his affair, which I was like, I'm sure your mother read it in the paper. But but her mother... Tells her once again, the same thing she told her before she got married. She said, Sheila, he is not worthy of you. Sheila says, back then, when she got married, she said, I truly thought he was. And now that I knew he wasn't, I was too terrified to do anything about it. She said she also talked to a friend. she be giving people's first and last names. I do hope these are aliases. There are people who would look at these folks and just curse them out on the GP that they deserve it like 20 years later. She said she talked to this woman named Alice. She said Alice was one of the only other black people on staff when she was teaching. She told Alice about Bob's latest affair. She says Alice lowered her chin and gave her a look. She said Sheila whatever you do you cannot leave him. I want to punch Alice. Alice ain't shit for saying that to her. Alice continues. She says, you and Bob represent the black community. You've got to just hang in there. I looked at her, tears streaming down my face. She leaned in closer and then said, this is normal. This is just what men do. I've never told the story about why I left my ex-husband. It was some crazy ass Demetria shit. I think it probably tops any Ask Demetria question that was ever written into me. There are very few people in the world that I've told the actual story to. Everyone who I told that story to and told me to stay, I blocked out of my life. You can't love me or even kind of even like me and tell me to stay in a situation that is debasing and dehumanizing and insulting and humiliating and embarrassing. You don't fucking like me. This chick don't got no respect for Miss Sheila. To listen to these antics from Bob? Miss Sheila been divorced from Bob for like a good 20 years at the time of us reading this book. We have gone through 112 pages. It's taking us three episodes just to get to page 150. Because just when you think Bob can't get any worse, he gets worser. People have been left. People have been divorced for so much less than the shit Bob pulls. And Miss Sheila goes to this woman with tears streaming down her face and a woman tells her, don't leave. Remember a guy friend told me, I was like, I can't do this. Like, I just, I I can't, like, I just, I can't believe he did this shit. I can't believe I'm in this situation. I, I just, I can't. And he was like, you can't leave. And I was like, why? Cause like my job, like I'll get a new job. Like the relationship expert thing, like, I'll find something else to do. Like there's literally, I said to him, there's work at the post office. He said something similar as this woman. And he was like, I mean, it's kind of just what men do. Like, you can't do any better. Really, nigga? Really? Clearly triggered by that one. Sheila goes on to say, she says, Alice cared about me. No, she don't. No, she don't. But not as much as she cared about what white society might think If the king and queen of black media were to split up in a scandal, there are certain unwritten rules within black culture. And one of them is that you don't criticize your own. Bob could have been sleeping with 50 other women and doing it right out on the lawn of the national mall, but we have to stand by him because he's the head of BET. We don't want one of our most successful businessmen to be tarnished because that tarnishes our whole community. So we just collectively turn our heads, eager to keep people on pedestals that they didn't deserve to be on in the first place. With all due respect, fuck the black community, fuck them friends, fuck Bob. Like, are you kidding me right now? Are you kidding me right now? Oh, Miss Sheila. Oh, Miss Sheila. She goes on to say, just in case, you know, people are are just mad at Alice. She goes on to say, Alice Queen wasn't the only one who urged me to stay with Bob for the greater good. Over the years, so many older black women said the same damn thing. I'd be at an event and someone would suddenly appear at my elbow, lean close and whisper, girl, just bite your lip and keep on going or stay strong. We need you both. It's not like people thought Bob could do no wrong. They knew he was doing wrong, but they believed that it was an acceptable price to pay for the things he was doing right. And it was up to me to just keep my mouth shut and hold my head hot. It was up to me to take one for the whole black team. I literally wrote in the margin in all caps, fuck all them people, ma'am, ma'am. Sheila says, people put so much pressure on me, so much guilt that even if I'd had the courage to leave Bob at that time, I probably couldn't have gone through with it. We just made it to chapter eight. Good Lord. She says, after the IPO, we got heavily into philanthropy and we got involved with Bill Clinton's presidential campaign, hosting fundraisers at our home. She said, Bob and I got invitations to events in New York and Los Angeles. We were able to meet and get to know celebrities like Denzel and Oprah Winfrey. Magazines and newspapers bumped up their coverage of us. After the 1992 election, we started spending time at the White House getting to know Bill and Hillary Clinton and having the honor of attending events there. She said, I hope that after making it this far, Bob might finally be happy and that after settling those lawsuits, maybe he would behave a little better. At the very least, I hope that he would be kinder to me after putting me through the very public humiliation of his affair. She says, maybe now he might actually mend his ways And be the man I had always believed he could be. Sis. Sis. No, he can't. He is both unwilling and unable. It ain't in him. Fidelity and decent treatment ain't in him. She said instead, Bob went in the other direction. He became emotionally abusive and downright mean. It was if the more successful he got in business, the more he needed to cut me down. You're too fat, he would say. Why do you wear your hair like that? It looks ugly. Or you look ridiculous in that outfit. Some other woman was always prettier, was always smarter, had gone to a better college than me. It's the same damn college he went to. Had a better figure. And he wanted me to know about it. He would insult and degrade me in front of anyone. Employees, friends, even our kids. But instead of telling him where he could put those insults or at least ignoring them, I took them to heart. They pierced right through me. When he said I was fat, I worked to lose weight. And then he said I was too thin. When he said he didn't like my hair, I cut it. And then he said it was too short. If he didn't like an outfit, I changed it. My God, I was always trying to please Bob. And I couldn't seem to recognize that no matter how hard I tried, that it was never going to happen. This is sad. And it even gets sadder. She says, I began to lose sight of who I really was. I constantly felt like a failure around him. Always on edge, waiting for the next insult. It was like a game for him. Some kind of cruel whack-a-mole where if I ever had a good feeling pop up, he'd rush to knock it back down. I'd get upset with him when he behaved that way. But deep down, I wondered if he was right. This is where shit just gets... And it's, it sounds crazy to say this because as wild as shit is, it gets wilder. She said, I was at work one day walking through the hallway in our new corporate building when an employee whispered, I'm praying for you. You're what now? What was this about? A few days later, someone else said the same thing. Why was everybody at BET praying for me all of a sudden? She found out that her husband, Bob, was having an affair with BET COO, Chief Operating Officer, Deborah Lee. Yes, that Deborah Lee. Deborah Lee wrote about the affair in her book. She went on a couple different morning TV shows and talked about it. So this is not rumor. This is fact as confirmed by both the wife and the mistress. Miss Sheila says, I had known Deborah Lee for more than a decade. We had a friendly relationship. I had supported her throughout her rise at BET and she had been in our home for dinners many times. I knew her husband, Randall, and her kids even went to school with my kids. It's galling to think about how happy I was for Deborah the day she was appointed to COO, how supportive I'd always been of her career and BET, and how she repaid me by getting into bed with my husband. She said when she confronted Bob about Deborah Lee, he told her, you're being ridiculous. There's nothing going on. You're imagining things again. You really need to get some professional help. Yo, this man is the devil. She said he looked me straight in the eye as he said all of this, which of course made me doubt myself again. Could anybody really be that good at lying? He's not a good liar, Miss Sheila. You have just been beat down so bad you can't see through it. Because all of D.C. knew it. We're talking about mid-90s when I was in high school. I remember my parents talking about this shit. Everybody knew. Except Miss Sheila. She says of Bob, she says, If he was lying, did that mean I was married to a sociopath? Yes. 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 On the other hand, if he was telling the truth, did that mean I was paranoid and delusional? No. No. No matter which way I turned, the outcome was horrible. I began to feel like I was losing my mind. (laughs) Yo, (laughs) we're on page 126. Bob is a fucking villain. I've said this a million times. I don't know what other way to describe him. Remember Miss Sheila talked about getting invited to the White House? She says, it doesn't matter if you've never been to the White House or you've been there many times. It's always an honor and a thrill to join the President and the First Lady for an event. I've been to the White House one time, one time, highlight of my life, the Obama White House. She said she and Bob got an invite and Sheila got all done up. She said she got her hair fixed. She got her makeup done. She had a dress. She had a jewelry. Like she was very excited to go to the White House. She was sitting downstairs and there was a driver waiting to take her and Bob to the White House. But Bob was running late. He does actually show up. This is impressive for Bob. She says, just as I was worrying that we missed the start of the event, Bob came breathing into the house. He ran upstairs, put on his tuxedo, and came back down to the kitchen. When I stood up to go, he looked me up and down and said, I'm not going out with you looking like that. And then he turned and strode out the door, leaving me standing there, my face burning and tears starting to sting my eyes. Miss Mary, this is a helper in the house. She stomped her foot so hard, I thought she might put it through the floor. Child, she said, her nostrils flaring, that man is a snake. Mary was from Mississippi, and she had a southern sense of propriety about her. But while she normally held her tongue about the things she witnessed in our home, Bob had finally gone too far. This? This is too far? The IPO would have been too far for me. But this, this is too far. Sheila says, I felt like such a fool standing there in the kitchen in my gown and my jewelry. I went to bed miserable that night, but when Bob came home hours later, he was singing a little tune. He did this all the time. I see the headlights in the driveway, and when the front door opened, I could hear him humming or singing happily to himself like life was his own personal little cabaret. She continues later. She says, it was obvious that I didn't matter to him, and now I wondered if I ever had. Miss Sheila, no, you don't, and no, you didn't. No, you never did. we're on page 131. Bob has become more brazen with Deborah Lee. I told y'all they were everywhere in DC. Like folks used to talk about it all the time. She said, Bob and Deborah seemed to feel very powerful. They didn't even care who knew about their affair. They'd have intimate dinners for two at the Four Seasons. And I was told once on a business trip, she actually came down to breakfast at a hotel wearing his shirt. They were now brazen enough to behave however they liked, regardless of whether or not I was present. She says she and Bob used to host this Christmas party for BET at their home. She said it was a tradition I loved and one I'd always worked hard to make perfect. But Bob told her (laughs) how she ain't killed this man will, will be one of life's great mysteries. She said Bob told her that Deborah would take over the hosting of the Christmas party. She said what made it feel even weirder was that she'd be holding the party at our old house, which Bob had sold to Deborah and her husband. Sheila actually agrees to go to this party that her husband's mistress is hosting at her old house. She said, I entered the front hallway. I greeted a few people and then I saw Bob standing in another room. I started walking toward him, but as soon as he saw me, he turned, put his arm around Deborah's shoulders, and guided her away from me and into another part of the house. Everybody who was standing nearby saw and immediately understood what was happening. I mean, Bob might as well have given me the finger. That's how obvious it was. In case you're wondering, where the hell was Deborah's husband? Right there. She said "Deborah's husband was standing there too, and he and I exchanged glances. I couldn't believe he would sit there and watch as another man squired his wife around in his own house. But he just looked down at the floor and then shuffled off to another room. Look, 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 both of y'all were standing there looking crazy. Sheila, that was your time to get a match light that shit on fire pick up some crystal go fool janet jackson and why did i get married start breaking shit like ma'am ma'am you can tell nobody ever properly went off on bob's ass because this is just too much too much but you can't stand there and judge deborah's husband when you sitting up there as bob's wife and you ain't doing shit either y'all together y'all should have tag teamed y'all should have cut the fuck up that night Folks ain't have a video or even a photo option on their phone yet. It would have been the best of DC lore. You could have traded out on that story for years, my damn years. Whew. Sheila said she felt embarrassed and alone. I turned around and headed straight for the door. I held my head up until I got outside and then I burst into tears. Man, you should have set some shit on fire. I am mad about this shit like it happened to me. I can't believe this man was out here acting like this. She says, one night not long after that, not that night, a night not so long after. Sheila got the patience and the tolerance of of Job. I don't even I don't want this level of tolerance. I don't want this level of patience. She said, Bob and I got into a fight about what was happening in our marriage. As usual, he didn't want to talk about it. So instead of engaging with me, he turned and walked out of the house. He didn't come back for hours. And I sat up half the night crying, wondering what on earth I was going to do. Something had to give, but I didn't know what. She says flat out, I didn't have the courage to leave. And even if I somehow found the courage, I didn't know how to leave. What would happen to me and the kids if I walked out? Would Bob leave me high and dry as my father had done to my mother? Ma'am, you are an initial investor in BET. You're going to take the money. Take half. Take your rightful half. I'm over here fighting furniture. I am angry. She says, Every time I thought about walking out, I kept seeing visions of my mother curled up on the kitchen floor, wailing and drooling, an empty shell of a woman. Despite having vowed that I'd never let a man do that to me, I was about two words away from curling up on the kitchen floor just as she did. Terry McMillan, one of my writing inspirations, after her marriage to the guy from Jamaica she went on Oprah and was talking about it I was a kid at the time I might have been in like late teens early 20s maybe not even that old I don't remember what year Stella got her groove back came out but she was on Oprah and she told Oprah about you know her decision to divorce and all of those things and she said something like you can fall apart you can fall down you just can't stay down it always stayed with me like if you need to fall apart fine just don't stay that way Sheila says laying there in bed I felt the full weight of all my bad decisions all my humiliations all my failures crushing in on me in the dark of the night I began to wonder whether this life was still worth living oh babe I had never had suicidal thoughts before really after all that shit she must be a praying woman actually she says later that she's not really like into she's not really into religion like that She says, but I just couldn't see a path forward, and the path I was on was killing me. She finally loses it, finally, after all these years, decades, with Bob. She said she went to a toy store with the kids. My mom used to take me to this toy store. I got this amazing dollhouse. But she said she was in the middle of this toy store, and she just lost it. She said, I started crying, but not in a subtle tears coming down my face way. I was sobbing, hunched over, my face in my hands. I could barely catch my breath, and my head started pounding. She said, that's the moment when I knew. I had to leave Bob. Finally. Fucking finally. Because I couldn't continue to live like this. Being unable to take care of myself was one thing, but I had two kids. I had to find a way to move forward. Some way, somehow. Because whatever lay ahead couldn't possibly be worse than what I was going through now. (laughs) I'm laughing because of the next sentence. (laughs) She said, I drove home that day, determined to save myself. And then Bob fired me (laughs) from BET. How you fire the (laughs) co-founder? She's a vice president at the company. She's a co-founder, initial investor, and she's also your wife. And you just fired her? <sighs> yo, yo, Bob has no bottom, yo. She said, I suppose I should have known. This is the top of chapter nine. She says, I suppose I should have known that Bob would push me out of the company. He was doing the same thing with his other top executives, either firing them or asking them to resign. From the moment I confronted him about his affair with Deborah Lee, it was only a matter of time. He didn't want anyone who complained about her to remain in the company. Yo, how you fire your wife so that you could keep working with your mistress? <laughs> Bob, is... I'm laughing. I don't understand how nobody ever punched this man in the face. I mean Sheila or anybody else. Just even now, just on the GP of it. She said, Bob comes to her one morning. She doesn't say where she was. He said, Sheila, you're done. I need you to pack up your office. Sheila said, I stared at him, unable to believe he would actually go that far. You still think Bob got limits? Lady, I haven't even lived your life. I'm just reading the book about your life. You really thought Bob had limits at this point? She said, who fires his own wife? The co-founder of their company, Bob. Bob. That's who, Bob. Bob told Sheila he wanted her to empty out her office when nobody was looking and then just stop coming to work. (laughs) That would be the end of my, she says, that would be the end of my 20-year involvement with the company we had started together. I don't even think any announcement was made, or if it was, I never heard about it. Because once Bob fired me, I had no interest in ever walking into that building again. Actually, I don't really understand how she kept going to work. Like, you know that your husband is cheating with the COO of the company. And everyone knows this. And you still show up to work every day and go sit in the office. Miss Sheila. Miss Sheila. I feel like I'm Shug talking to Steely, like trying to speak some life into her. Miss Sheila, no. Sheila said she had decided to leave Bob. But even still, she wanted to take family photos. She said, I thought the kids might like to have a family portrait while we were actually still a family. She made arrangements with the photographer. She says on the day of the appointment, she and the kids got dressed and went to sit for the photo session. She said Bob refused to take part. He told her, you all go ahead, I'm not doing it. No matter how much we tried to control him, He would not sit for even a single picture. I'm not even surprised at this. I mean, nothing Bob does at this point. That's not true because I finished the book and he does some other crazy shit. We still got like another hundred pages to go with Bob. Sheila is actually leaving Bob this time. And she said she told Bob, I want a divorce and you've got to sell the company. And after all of Bob and his shenanigans for decades, all the bullshit Bob has put her through, he said, "Okay, this is how Miss Sheila found out that BET had been sold and that she was like now a billionaire. She told Bob to sell the company and she hadn't heard anything else about it. She said, I was walking through Times Square one day. I glanced up at the big electronic news ticker and I saw the headline BET had been bought by Viacom and the price was Hold on. Can that be right? 2.3 billion. Billion with a B. She goes on to say, for all the worrying I had done about whether leaving Bob would decimate me financially. This is even after they were worth 218 million American USD dollars in dineros. She said, the sale of BET meant that I would end up in a better position than I could have ever dreamed of. It was like I'd been running the world's longest marathon, but just as my legs were about to give out, I could finally see the finish line. So Sheila said she files for divorce and she said people would come up to her and say stuff like, girl, he really messed you over, didn't he? Or, you know, I saw Bob and Deborah out on Saturday night. They're not even bothering to hide it anymore. She said, every time someone made a comment like this, it tore the wound right back open again. I resolved to stay in Middleburg as much as I could to protect myself. She talks a bit about her kids here. I wonder reading this book. Surely the kids saw it before it went to publication. But I would love to know, and we never will because I don't think either one of the kids do interviews. But I would love to know like, what they think of their mother's book or what they think of their father. Because like, this is a lot. I know people who don't fuck with their fathers for like a quarter of the shit that's in this book. And this is our last little bit. She says, um, when you're out of sorts, mentally and emotionally, you put yourself in danger physically too. I was a shambling mess in the years after Bob and I split banging into counters, slamming my fingers and doors, burning myself at the stove. There was a serious disconnect between my body and soul. I think she said she was riding a horse, and the horse got spooked. She got thrown off, and then the horse pounded on top of her. She says, in an instant, six of my ribs broke, and my left lung collapsed. I wanted to point out that part. In the process of going through my divorce, I got shingles first, which, my God, that's the most painful shit ever. Only second to sciatica. The stress from dealing with all of that literally made my body start turning on itself. So that part about like mentally and emotionally being off and then physically, like Sheila's walking into shit. I went to this event in LA once. Melinda Williams hosts these really cute events, women only. And we just talk about a whole bunch of things. But there was a woman on stage and the conversation wasn't even about relationships, but she just happened to mention that in the process of going through her own divorce, that she got sciatica. And then there was this murmur through the audience, like a bunch of women kind of like in agreement with her. And then I was like, wait, you got sciatica? Me too. And then other people in the audience were like, oh my God, I got sciatica. I got sciatica. I got shingles. And I was like, WTF? Apparently this happens to a lot of women when they're like going through very specifically relationship stress. It's like niggas really trying to kill you out here. She said after her ribs broke, And her left lung collapsed. Bob came to visit her at the hospital. She said, I was in so much pain and discomfort, I was afraid to be alone. I asked him to stay, which sounds crazy, but isn't because you've been in something with somebody for like 30 years. Y'all are codependent in a weirdly fucked up, traumatizing way. It's weird, but I get it. She said, I asked him to stay, and he actually did. He slept in the chair in my hospital room, an act of kindness that surprised me. It was if he could display any sort of emotional connection to me, only when he no longer felt bound by marriage vows to do it. Whew. All right, that concludes part three of Sheila and Bob. We'll do another 50 pages, hopefully. I don't know if I'm going to have time to do it on Tuesday. I may go see gorillas on Tuesday. It's like a six-mile trek to see the gorillas and then six miles back. I can't promise you Tuesday. Maybe Friday. I'm going to do the best that I can, and I hope that's good enough for you. All right. That's our episode this week. We'll be back on Tuesday. Have an amazing weekend. Okay. Bye.